should I get, should I, should I produce my beer? Is there like a, like a timing thing that happens in terms of the creating the mood vibe? Cause I've got the light, the colored lights. I have an ashtray with a joint in it. Like as far as the sort of recreation of bar conversation, I, I can, I can really, uh, I can really make that happen for you. You are listening to your favorite podcast in the entire world, watching movies at the bar. And I am talking specifically to the person who one star bombed us on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Uh, I it's just see a privilege you. to have enemies. I love it. I'm watching you through your webcam. You're pathetic. Uh, I'm, I'm Thomas, and I am joined by, as always, my esteemed co-host, Bethy Squires. Bethy, how's it going? Hi, I'm Bethy. I'm not as upset about the one star review. I'm I'm taking it in stride. I um I have a theory. It's someone whose bad take I quote tweeted at some <laughs> point. What else could it be? Yeah, oh uh, yeah. You know, no, uh, a one star review is essentially the uh, like, especially because it was a one star review with no actual review. It's just the star. So that's kind of the quote tweet in a, on a private Twitter of podcasting yeah it's a coward's paradise um anyway we tonight are joined by ben collins who's a dear friend of mine Mm -hmm. also an incredible writer ben is uh, one of two writers behind super dark times a movie i love the night house another movie i love and the forthcoming hellraiser a movie that i suspect i will love ben thanks so much for joining us yeah, thank you, Thomas, and thank you, Beth- Bethy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it wrong. Okay, I make sure I, when people have specific nicknames, I get, I'm always afraid I'm going to, like, fuck it up, like, and then you're going to, like, hold back on telling me I fucked it up, and, you know. Oh, I actually do do that. If if I don't like somebody, <laughs> I don't tell them that they fucked up my name. Yeah, you just I let, let them, them dig your grave. the wrong name over and over again, because I get to keep part of myself for myself then. It's, like, my secret name. But you said it right. Yeah, you get to dislike them more every time. Like you set a trap for them, and then mm-hmm. you just didn't tell them, and they kept stepping in the trap. It's like it's Correct. like in Groundhog Day when Ned Ryerson keeps stepping in the puddle. Look at that cinematic reference, right at, right at the start. <laughs> no, that was great. Yeah, Ben's a cinephile. He's kind of like uh, imagine IMDb, but with a mm-hmm. stunning corporeal form. Ben, how does it feel to be on a podcast? Uh, I, I I enjoy uh, generally being on podcasts, and I usually like ones that I, you know, am, like, not supposed to be completely professional. So, th- you know, this is an informal kind of thing. It's really my style. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Sorry, who told you the show was informal? I'm in a ball gown. Oh, oh fuck, you're right. Yeah, you guys have... Thomas has his tails and his top hat on. <laughs> He's holding his foot up to the camera so we can see his spats. They're lavender. Yeah. The whole, the whole, you know, the whole ordeal. I, meanwhile, am sitting in my apartment. I just poured a Stella Artois into, I just remembered that I had an actual Stella glass, like the one with like the logo and shit that the thing. And I thought it was appropriate because I don't know how old you guys are and I'm going to date myself here, but I kind of think of myself as like, I came up in the sort of Stella Artois era of independent film. Uh, <laughs> like, it, like when I was in college, 
like you know because i got i got into like you know independent film in high school and like foreign films in high school because i i went from having like a rabbit ear television with like four fuzzy channels uh upon which one of upon one of which i saw hellraiser when i was nine years old in complete out of context and was like you know (laughs) mind blown but other than that kind of thing every once in a while you didn't get a lot of interesting stuff and then my dad got satellite when i was in ninth grade and we had ifc and the sundance channel and so I watched the shit out of like all that stuff. But by the time I got to college and was actually like going to the theaters to see like the movies that were contemporary and making sure I kept up with everybody. That was when I guess Stella just decided to sponsor all independent film. Do you guys remember this? Do they still do that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and it was just like, there was always the commercials and they would kind of make you like, just create this weird association with going to like, you know, like uh, like a landmark theater or something, just always getting a Stella, you know? So like, I kind of thought it was appropriate for a movie like this. This is a little bit right before that time. It's like a couple years before that era began. But this is very, like, Asias is very much of, like, he's like a hero of the kind of Stella Artois era of independent foreign international specialty cinema, I think. So it's a kind of a nice, uh, you know, fitting tie-in in my mind. It's it's very possible that this golden age of Asias coincided with the Stella era, but... All of these movies heavily feature Heineken. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And so when I watch an Asayas film, I always have to have some Heineken unlocked. I typ- when I'm watching his movies, I typically, it's like I want like Johnny Walker Red or something or like the ones that, because I think of the stuff that Carlos drinks, I want whatever Carlos is drinking. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Carlos is so good. The Stella Artois era of, especially like foreign cinema, it does feel like, it's a little bit more um, what this movie was kind of like making fun of, of like the the era of like the the mid French blockbuster, and Stella is sort of the mid French blockbusters of beers. Like, well, it sounds yeah. foreign, so I bet yeah. it's smarter. So let's let's drink a Stella mm-hmm. and watch Les Visiteurs or something or like Amelie, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I I think so. And that was like I I had been. Like, I didn't see this movie, and didn't see Irma Vep until I was in, until I was living in L.A., but it was one of those ones that you would just see on, like, the Hollywood video shelf, and always like, well, what is that? You know, not really know what it was, but it was like, by the time I did see it, I had had enough of an education on both, like, the French New Wave, which was my first, like, real, like, like cinephile passion in, like, high school. So, like, Godard and Truffaut and, like, deeper into all those guys eventually, and then, you know, was also seeing, you know, because, like, Amelie came out when I was a senior in high school. Like, one of the first dates I went on with my now ex-wife, but, like, my, my first wife that I was married to for nine years, was to see Amelie in the theater. Because <laughs> that's how, like, romantic I was as a the high school senior. It's like, I'm going to take you to the new French, you know, film or whatever. So, like, I kind of had enough of a thing of, like, understanding that there was, like, the cool stuff, then kind of stuff that was maybe cool at first and then kind of lame like that movie sort of turned out to be. But then by the time I saw Irma Vep, it's like, if you, I, th- I think if you probably benefit from having anything like a holistic understanding of that. I don't know if you didn't know any of those movies at all. If you'd never seen a French film, I wonder if this movie would make a goddamn bit of sense. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think that it speaks to something more universal than that, even though like that enriches the experience of watching it, which is like what happens when a very artful filmmaker with a revered body of work ages into a hack, you know, (laughs) just ages Mm -hmm. into their sort of like dud studio era. You're talking about the, like the layout character, right? With the the pronunciation of like French people's names. So we can, is it Asias? Can we agree on that up front? Asias. Yeah. Is the, is the pronunciation is my understanding. I don't even know. I was just, that's the one I pulled, but like, 
Yeah, that his the layout character is so heartbreaking. And it's like I think it's because it's him too. Like it's because mm-hmm. you know that he really is like such a passionate, like really cool guy and that he sort of is like the spirit of like the new wave that kind of carried through in a certain kind of sense. But like seeing him be embarrassing and to <laughs> me when he drinks out of that Coke bottle, the fact that he takes he takes like a two liter basically off of the crafty table and is just drinking straight from it. But yeah. at first you don't see him take it. He just kind of like gets it from his assistant or produces it from somewhere. And so at first I thought he just had like a personal container or like a t- personal two liter of, of Coke classic that he just kept on him, which is disgusting as a concept in a way, <laughs> but like knowing that he t- I just like everything about that character. It's like, you want him to be so cool. It's such perfect casting. And I really totally. think this movie made me stop and think about how kind of all of Asias's movies are pretty perfectly cast. It's kind of one of his one of his things in that way. Like, it, it's sort of like a French Jonathan Demi or something. Totally, where he's always pulling from some. It's like half the time you're like, is that like his neighbor's kid or something, or is that like some you know poet that he's friends with or some musician? It's like he's just pulling from whatever you know. It's like he doesn't. Uh, there's just very unique and and very well suited faces in every role. I feel like, and in this movie, in Irmavet, like all of the crew, it's such a thing, right? Anytime you make a movie about a film crew, you have to know like those personalities that you're trying to represent in some right. way or sort of play for play towards or against. And so it's very specific. And maybe in some cases it's the real crew. I have no idea, but it's great. Whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah. He's got a real knack for sometimes casting against expectations or star image based on some intuition he has of like what that actor does really well. I think, you know, what he did with Kristen Stewart in Personal Shopper and Clouds of Sils Maria is amazing and and Mm -hmm. warrants hours of discussion because he knew how good she was in all of these ways that no one had yet given her credit for. And then she just had this incredible stage on which to play and do her thing. I, and, and I was, it was funny. I was watching Irma Vep last night for the, you know, God knows how many times, even just since we decided to do this movie, I just watched it either two or three times, but I was watching it again and I was trying to pin down like what, what you know, there's so many indefinable qualities of, of Osseus's movies that, I, I think are what make them appealing to people. Like I think a lot of times people can't really exactly explain what they like about them. And and so I was like, found myself wanting to pin down like, what is it I get out of these movies? And, and it's a lot of things. So this isn't like the one thing, but I, I did land on watching this movie last night. Cause I, I found myself noticing again, like there is a weird part of me and this is going to sound so horrible, but it's like part of, I, I feel like I go to his movies to like fall in love with people. And it's not huh. just romantically, although like, I, as a as a you know like a, a heterosexual man like I you know I'm attracted to women his taste in perform <laughs> actors but I don't, I'm not just like it's not an objectifying thing like human beings like in but the men and the women like I'm so it's like I walk away with a new favorite actor or an actor that I thought I knew that I completely changed my mind or an actor I forgot about that I like completely now I'm just obsessed with again or something it's like every single time there's a new person that I'm just really like, you know, who is that? And Kristen Stewart was like, that was a complete mind blowing reinvention. Totally. And it's actually a fun one to talk about. Cause I saw a personal shopper at, it was, it had already played at all the major festivals, but it, it was at Rotterdam the year that super dark times premiered. So oh, he cool. wasn't there or anything, but it was just like screening there. And so I had seen like the international sales trailer that went up like with the, with the can, like when it, when it was accepted in the can or whatever, Nighthouse was already written. 
So we had all this texting shit in our movie from the very first draft. Like that was that was that was arguably the origin of the idea in terms of like we knew that this idea of like yeah what if you know like we played with that like digital communication from somebody you thought was dead it, because it's so it happens it does really happen like you know hiccups in digital communication so but it's also it's like deniable in a way that it could have been a glitch but it could have been supernatural so it's such a great thing for right now. And no one had done it that we had seen. So we'd had that in a script for like a couple years at that point. And, and then personal shopper trailer goes up and I was like, oh my God. Because it's the whole <laughs> scene on the train with her texting. And I was like, holy shit. And so like in the, that was like, you know, by tw- it was the beginning of 2017 that Kevin and I were in Rotterdam and we managed to get tickets to the screening to go see it. And it was like a funeral march because Kevin had read, Super, uh, read Nighthouse and you know, we were nowhere near getting the movie made at that point. And I was like basically walking to the screening thinking that I was going to go see the movie that just killed our movie. And I texted <laughs> Luke and I was just like, yeah, I mean, I will see. I hope it's not too similar, but like, you know, whatever. I mean, he's, you know, at least, at least I'll get to see one of my favorite filmmakers. And I go, cool movie, you know, and like really just sat down thinking like that was it. And it's, it was such a funny feeling to be like, no, it's similar in some ways, but I, I think we're fine. I think we'll be okay. We'll be able to make this movie. And we did. And it's like that, I don't know that everything about, that experience because I was so expecting to hate it. But then even after clouds of sales, Maria, there were still new levels of Kristen Stewart to discover oh, yeah. in personal shopper that it was like mind blowing on that level that I was like, so relieved it didn't ruin our movie, but then so exhilarated because it was like an even fresher, cooler thing for him to do. And I've watched that one probably more than maybe any of them. I don't know. That might be, I could talk about all these movies. I'm sorry. No, it's a it's a total crusher. Also, everything you're saying is like sending my brain in four different directions. But mm-hmm. at the top of every episode, Bethy <laughs> has a segment where we uh, we contextualize the conversation in real lived experiences of drinking alcohol at a bar and maybe watching movies. So, Bethy, do you mm-hmm. want to take it away? Yeah, I was just wondering, Ben, whether mm-hmm. you are the type of person who likes to go to a bar and watch like whatever movie is playing on the TV. You know, some guests are like, yeah, that's my jam. It's I it, or some people are like, well, it's better than there's being sports in the TV. And then other people are like, I I can't divide my attention like that. I don't know what you're talking about. So I, as you may soon figure out if you haven't already, is I'm like kind of severely ADHD and I didn't know it until just a few years ago. So <laughs> I was always the person that whether it was a bar or a diner or whatever that I would you know, be at with my friends that, that uh, would be carrying on the conversation and watching the movie on the TV and talking like, so like commenting <laughs> on the movie because I assumed everybody else was doing both, but it would often turn out that nobody was, was doing both and it was just me, but it was like, I, I enjoy because if I don't know what to do, I just want something to look at. So especially like I, I usually have movies playing all the time in my own home, like, 24 seven. And it's just something I like to have something to look at, you know, when I'm uh, thinking or something. So do you like to watch the movies with the sound on? Like when you're at home, just having them on, are they on mute or are they on with sound? Usually, usually on mute. And in fact, I think I'm going to put Irma Vep on in a second, probably just because that's kind of a nice way to (laughs) remind myself. But I I usually have something on mute just all the time. And, and, and that's, it's, it's kind of in the same way that like, I like to have, all these books laid out and I move my, I like a change of the order of the books sometimes just to get a different thing to look at, Mm -hmm. you know, like I want to, I want my eyes to land on something different. So it's like certain movies are perfect to have on because they're going to have visual variety and 
if I look up, I'm going to see something different. Like I'm less likely to put the the Tom Hardy, uh, Stephen Knight masterpiece uh, uh, lock on the TV <laughs> on mute because it's just Tom Hardy in a car for, you know, 80 minutes. But like Irma Vep is the perfect movie to have on because everything I look up, there's five or six beautiful human beings. There's beautiful colors, textures, like everything. I, it's like, it just makes me, you know, want to be in Paris, want to be on set, want to be, you know, like, yeah, it's a good one for that. Not to mention that, like, the experience of every person in the movie is not quite being able to fully understand everyone else in the movie. So having it on mute is kind of the same as it being, like, Maggie Chung, who only knows, only knows Chinese and English and doesn't speak mm-hmm. French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a lot to say about about her character in this movie when we get more into it. But, yeah. Yeah, I, it's weird. It's one that works it does work well in both, in both forms, I think, because the movie's not really about plot. It's, it's, it's the most vibe, like pure vibe movie. Mm-hmm. 100%. Even in, in, in his, even arguably in his catalog, which is largely that it's, it's such a vibes movie that it's not, I don't even remember. There's not, I don't know. Like what would you, like you, you sort of forget details and it doesn't really matter. I don't know. It's just like a hangout thing and it's cool. And I like everybody in it so much. And it makes me think about you know, people I like. I I think it's definitely a hangout movie and something that I love so much about it is it has this leisurely quality despite little fires popping up constantly. It's like Mm -hmm. this Maggie character is, is incredibly motivated to be making this great movie and it's just red flag after red flag and she's soldiering (laughs) on when it becomes abundantly clear scene after scene that this shit is going to blow up. Um, in, you know, some kind of mundane, I guess mundane spectacle doesn't really make sense, but it it is ultimately what happens. Like the production explodes in just kind of pathetic fashion. It's kind of, one thing I wrote down when I was watching the movie is like, Maggie is really, uh, portraying like the resilience of a woman to vibe. I wrote down like the resilient (laughs) urge to vibe. Because uh, it's everybody is like projecting weird shit on her. Everybody is like making buckwild declarative statements at her about like mm-hmm. the future of cinema and whether this movie's gonna go. And she's like, "Well, I'm here, so I'm just gonna kind of do the job that's in front of me and try and be fucking chill." But uh, no, no, you go off. Continue yelling at me about stuff that's not my problem. I love this. Go on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very like it's a it, it is a kind of it's a a kind of archetype that I, I'm sure has precedent before Monica Vitti, but that I usually associate with Monica Vitti in the Antonioni films of the kind of woman that, that observes everything, receives everything, doesn't necessarily express a lot of opinions about it, but clearly seems to be like the deepest, most serious person in the movie. And just sort of is like kind of going through the chaos of these other people's like lunacy on some level it's sort of like the final girl in a horror movie, but usually the horror isn't part of it in the archetype that I'm imagining because mm-hmm. it's a very like European cinema thing. And certain actors have the quality to carry that sort of thing. And Maggie Chung is like, I mean, I think she's one of the most, I think the like, it's like cameras were created to photograph her or something. I mean, it's really, truly like a remarkable, this movie in particular is like, she has more charisma on screen with do saying and doing nothing than most people can dream of, you know? So it's like, totally, but it's, it's, you can't to, to pin a movie on a performance like that. You need somebody whose eyes especially carry a lot. And I, I like the other more contemporary examples is like, I think Alia Shawkat in 
like search party and all this stuff that she's been doing. Like you, you follow her in that first season. I mean, all the crazy later season stuff that I also love, but that first season, like that look of composure and belief that becomes an obsessive quality in some people, but that you follow her because you just believe that she's seeing more than other people are, you know, or like Zazie Betts in Atlanta is very similar. And it's like, you, it's, it, there's something of a, you're right. I can't put my finger on it, but it's a quality that, that I find extraordinarily compelling in on-screen presences. I think it's an interesting comparison you make to Alia Shawkat. I think Maggie in this is a much more admirable character. You know, I don't think she has sort of like the deeply deplorable qualities that you eventually learn about Dory. <laughs> season one, season one, search party. I, I really forget. I should preface that. Yeah, but like it took me. It took me most of the second season of search party to realize that like dory is like kind of a narcissistic piece of shit and it's all out there but yeah. you're right there's something about alia shakat's performance and her eyes in the way that you like you think this is a young person who's striving who like ultimately is going to figure out something profound but you realize that she's just like fundamentally deluded and, and self-absorbed mm-hmm. again maggie is is so different yeah, yeah, but it's it's that quality that I think compels an audience, even if somebody, even if the character is at times seemingly receptive to the events around them. You just, right. I think that's part of the thing. Because like you look at something like, um, I was just watching La Ventura the other day for like that's another one of my favorite movies, similar thing, where it's like the plot of that is just like Monica Vitti's on a boat with her like shitty friend and her like <laughs> shitty friend's friends. And then her shitty friend disappears. And then the rest of the movie is her just wandering around looking for her shitty friend and then like sort of, she fucks her shitty friend's shitty boyfriend or something. And like, that's the whole movie. And it's mostly just Monica Vici, like walking around looking at stuff and that's it, you know? And it's like, but I find that movie so incredibly mysterious and compelling. And I think that that kind of performance is what gives, it's, it's what pulls an audience in and also what keeps them coming back to a movie that's so light on event and, and you know, incident as it were, <laughs> I think is what I guess I'm saying is you can get away with a lot less incident when you have somebody that magnetic, and, and it's kind of stoic in the in the center role, like you're saying, Bethy, I think. Yeah. You know the you know the I can I can fix him meme, just people saying mm-hmm. that like some piece of shit dude they can fix because like they've got what it takes to thread the needle. I think she is that. I think this is like the I can fix him movie. It's like she thinks she can fix Renee. She thinks she can fix the movie. She thinks that she can outsmart all of the things that Zoe is projecting onto her that make their relationship really complicated. But like, ultimately, she can't. Like, for all her ambition and all of her belief that like she can make this movie really good, she can't fix any of these people. She can't fix any of those things. But, you know, she'll be damned if she doesn't try. The thing that I kept being um, reminded of while watching the movie is this one scene in Simpsons in the episode Homie the Clown, where <laughs> the mafia guys have Homer dressed as Krusty and is like holding him at gunpoint. And Krusty comes in and he's he, he bursts in. Ben and says, is oh. nodding vigorously for those of you <laughs> yes. not seeing him. Right. Krusty says, uh, you've got a deadly game of cat and mouse going on. I'll come back later. It's like he just keeps, he just keeps uh, Maggie just keeps sort of like stumbling into these really fraught relationships that have nothing mm-hmm. to do with her. And she's like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, OK. Mm, all right. Well, OK, I'm going to. And then just sort of extricating herself from whatever the fraught scene is that she stumbled into. Yeah, it's weird because I'm I'm I, I'm in a place just on a like not to go. I'm not going to take it personally, but just like I, I'm in a place of sort of deep 
uh, introspection in my personal life right now. And I have liked Asius's movies for so long now. And so watching like these movies that, that I've seen, you know, like I'm trying to remember what year would it have been that I first saw Irma Vep easily, like maybe 2011 or 12, like we were saying earlier, like, you know, so it's been like about a decade or something like that. But it's like, I have found over time that I do relate to many of his female lead characters. And I think it's probably because he, of course, is sort of projecting into them, right? So maybe it's like, you know, I'm receiving him and maybe that, you know, but it's like, there's something to the way, because it doesn't feel untrue either, but like the, the, the Kristen Stewart characters in both of those movies and the Maggie character in this are like characters that when I watch the movie at times, I feel... I, I relate to them very strongly and it could, it could be circumstantial because I was, I was joking to myself when I was watching it last night that like when I first saw Irma Vep, I'd never made a feature film. And in the time since I first saw it in the time that we're talking about this, I've made now, you know, I've been a part of the making of five of them. And, and, and it's like, so I've, I've traveled to be on set. In fact, I've never shot a movie in Los Angeles, but I've only ever traveled to be on set. And, and I've traveled to, you know, sometimes like, you know, odd places to be on set or just for work stuff that takes me to Europe or different things. So I've been the person like kind of flying in, not knowing where I am, going to some office where I'm given an envelope with some euros in it because the per diem, the WGA, you know, like there's these different things and you got to go this, this person's the car is going to, and it's like all that stuff. And so watching it, it's like, it's funny because like in, in, I think in Asias's mind, part of the central comedy of this is that Maggie's like the bit, like a huge movie star in China at this point in Hong Kong. Yeah. And that she comes over here and that it's like, she's a fish out of water in the sense that she's no one even really knows who she is. She's not famous. And she's just kind of rolling with it. Cause she's not a pretentious celebrity, but it's like the joke of course, is that, that the treatment of uh, a screenwriter on a relatively low budget or independent film in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, accommodation and like stuff like that is about the way Maggie gets treated in this movie for the most part. Like she gets left behind at things and people don't know what to do with her. And they're like, Oh, just go sit over there for a while and stuff. And like the number of times Luke and I have just kind of been the extra bodies that people were like, we're so happy you're here. What are we supposed to do with them now that they're here? You know? And it's <laughs> yeah. like that. They really already have your fight. script in PDF yeah. form, man. They don't need you. No, they're all excited. But then there's always this, this sort of like, Oh, were we supposed to pack them? Did you come? No, they're, oh, yeah, they got to eat, don't they? Fuck, you know, like, it's like, oh, we don't just come and then, yay, a movie, and then disappear, like elves or something. But, like, that feeling of, of, like you said, you keep, and when you show up, especially as the writer, you're usually showing up at some unspecified middle point of the process if you're not there for the whole time, which is rare. So it's like you're usually showing up where it's like you've maybe been given the heads up on some drama or you just have to, like, vibe it all up because you're just walking into these social situations and you're like okay that guy looks like a grip that person looks like a camera guy you know just sort of like trying to understand who's who and then you're like okay that guy's an asshole uh she's in love with the <laughs> and you're like trying to sort of like get the you know catch up on the thing but you're always one step behind and so you are typically in someone's way or or walking into a room you shouldn't walk into or awkwardly trying to offer Rebecca Hall gum and, you know, she politely <laughs> declines you and like, you know, those kind of things that happen. And so this movie now became very relatable instead of like a fantasy that I used to watch it and be like, man, it looks so cool to make movies. Like it never occurred to me that this was supposed to be like a low budget movie because it just right. looked like the kind of shit my friends made in film school. And I was like, that's awesome. And now I watch it. I'm like, yeah, I get it. This is supposed to be like, they have no money at all. It's, I don't know. 
It's very funny. I, it just occurred to me that, um, Ben, like you said, you would see this movie on video store shelves, but never quite knew what it was. I think that is probably still true for a lot of people. I think of the things mm-hmm. we've talked about, Irma Vep is probably one of the lesser seen. So do you mm-hmm. or Bethy want to give just a plot context so people understand what it is that we're talking about? I can do that. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at Bethy. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I feel like you're going to be better at it. Okay, so Irma Vep is about Maggie Chung coming from Hong Kong, where she she's playing herself, essentially. She comes from Hong Kong to France to film her first, like, like European film. She's been cast as the lead in a remake of Les Vampires, which was like a silent film serial starring someone named Musidora, who was like the most Parisian Parisian to ever be in Paris. And she's the new lead. The director is this sort of, like, washed-up new wave guy. He used to be cool, but everyone is, like, he's shooting blanks now. He's got nothing. And so she she gets there, and the film set is disarray. Nobody really knows what to do with her yet. Nobody really gets why she's the one who's been cast in this movie. Um, but she gets fitted for a latex cat suit, kind of inspired by Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. <laughs> and so she's just often just sitting around this set where people aren't filming when they should be in this, like, latex fetish wear. And this kind of prompts the, the costume designer or dresser, I'm not exactly sure, or both, I'm not entirely sure what her role is in the set, uh, to develop, like, a little crush. Mm-hmm. Now, the the director is, like, spinning out because nothing is going right. He wants it to be too serious, but it seems uh, fucking silly. Uh, the dailies aren't going well. Uh, somebody explains to Maggie that the, the dresser has a crush on her. And Maggie's just like, oh, okay, uh-huh. Um, and as the film, as the, the shoot slowly unravels, Maggie sort of has to steel herself against all these people who are projecting weird shit on her. Uh, mm-hmm. the end. I mean, like, there's more stuff that happens, but like, that's the general premise. Yeah, there's not really a plot. I mean, it really is kind of like a very slice of life. Oh, my cat is knocking stuff off the counter in there. Uh, oh, it, yeah. it's like, yeah, oh yeah, he's mad that I'm not giving him attention. Um, it's again, yeah, it's, it's all just very like slice of life, almost like, it's almost like, like in a, in a weird way, you could probably present it and trick people into thinking it was like one of those like like BTS documentaries about a movie that didn't happen, like the Lost in La Mancha or <laughs> oh, something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you could probably trick somebody into thinking that this is just a behind the scenes making of this Maggie Chung movie that didn't happen. That's why you never heard of it. And that's all. It's like it literally feels kind of like you know you're just grabbing little slices of the best moments that he thought to get. And and the way he works with his DP, too, really reinforces that. Like, the movie has so many really one. long takes. The camera is constantly moving around in a really sort mm-hmm. of intuitive way. And, you know, Ben, in the same way that you said every time you watch an Asayas film, you're falling in love with a new actor, you're falling in love with a new person just for who they are in that space, kind of under his direction. But another part of that is just the way the camera moves you through. Like, I think about the dinner party where they're all just sort of drinking wine and vibing out and she's a little bit outside of the action. And then they drop the needle on Luna's Bonnie and Clyde. I Mm -hmm. watched this movie at the height of lockdown 
And when mm-hmm. they dropped the needle on that song and turned the receiver up a bit before they started dancing, there was mm-hmm. something just so visceral about how that's captured. I wanted to be there. Like, I wanted to be hanging out with these people. Yes. Wouldn't even need to talk with them. I just want to hear that song. I want to drink that wine. It's it's a weirdly immersive experience. Yeah. No, he always, he, he, he's got a, like a relationship to tactile details that certain directors have that like, where it's like, like uh, it's this is a weird comparison, but David Fincher has a similar thing where like when you see somebody like drink something specific in a David Fincher movie or eat something specific, it feels so precisely chosen that it just instantly becomes appealing. And it's like a different kind of thing in a naturalistic sense, but it's the same thing where you're like, I just want to smoke cigarettes. I want to be in that lighting. I but it smells great in there. Like everything about the hotel rooms, the hallways, I just, every one of everything in all of his movies, I want to be there. I want to eat it, drink it wear it it's just the best i don't know why i think there's just some sort of like passion i don't know totally no bethy you you hadn't seen this before and i know that you have a special relationship with that song and i think you had a response to that scene i'd love to know your thoughts yeah i wanted to to think about like the is i think it's really funny seeing these these french people dance to like that cover of Bonnie and Clyde because they're the pronun- Luna's pronunciation is so fucking bad. It's like comical. Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that that, that that you to believe that they would li- listen to that and not the Serge Gainsbourg one is kind of funny. Yeah, it's I really funny. That. And but it's also like because they've been talking so much about whether or not French cinema can exist. And like the need for a French cinema to have like maybe a, like deeply political overtones, like having this like deeply, deeply French conversation about the nature of like politics in cinema and whether or not it's like okay even to have like action. Uh, and, and then it just goes into this like American, or I assume they're American, um, cover of a French song that is like, yeah, purely for vibes and like, they can get down on that level with the song. It's just very funny to mm-hmm. me. No, I think, and that's, a, he's one of the people, there's like, there's a lot of directors that, well, sorry, there's not, there's not a ton of directors, but there are like a number that I like that I would put in the category that it's not to say that all filmmakers have to have good taste in music, but it makes a big fucking difference when you do. <laughs> and it's like in, in the fact that like, I, like I'm willing now that I think about it, I'm willing to bet that that was a very conscious choice for exactly the point, the, the contrast that you're probably describing, because it's like, it's not like he had to use that song. Like the dude, the dude pulls deep cuts from everywhere in every one of his movies. That's another thing. I, I, I go to his movies to write down a new song. I mean, I learned about his number one <laughs> song in heaven, the spark song <laughs> when I saw a fucking uh, boarding gate. Yeah, Which, yeah, by the way, yeah. I, I'll I'll come back on the show to talk about Boarding Gate. I'm the <laughs> only person that wants to talk about Boarding Gate. Boarding Nobody's Gate's, even seen that movie. Boarding Gate's one. sick. It's in my. It's probably in my bottom third of his mm. filmography, only because I love so much what he does with yeah. kind of mundane circumstance. But yeah, I think it doesn't even have to be like a good, uh, good taste in music because that's like so subjective. Uh, I mean, I I happen to align with what he likes musically but like i honestly this is this sounds funny but it reminds me of josh schwartz's like way he scored uh the pilot of the oc with just music that was on his ipod like it's it's (laughs) about like the the personal connection to the music more than like it being like the good music is like more important it's the fact that that the person who chose the songs has lived with the songs and has like very specific 
associations with it that they're trying to bring. And you, you find that or like in, um, again, it doesn't have to be like good. It doesn't even have to be like a quote unquote good movie. Like the, all these things that I've done sequence in Southland Tales. It's like, that's, oh, that's a good personal. Movie. That's, sure, a good that's a good song. Yeah. I would argue oh, sure, it's a good movie, sure. but it's like, it's about the, it's about the sincerity of the emotion held toward the music. Yes, yeah, totally. Luke, Luke. The way Luke would say it, my my writing partner, uh, creative partner Luke, he would like it's like it's it's just the specificity of a choice is what you really like at the very core level. Like if if you are somebody who you know like appreciates filmmakers and cinema for all these things, I do think that it comes down to that. Is like just seeing it's like you do appreciate because you can't like everything. You're not gonna have the same taste as everybody. So when I say good taste, I guess what in that sense what I should have been more clear to say is that I think it's like intentional choice and that I do think that at times he's probably because he has seemingly an endless breadth of music taste that he's picking things that for different reasons because it's not just I think that sometimes the, the way that a lot of filmmakers or, or, or less thoughtful filmmakers treat like especially like choosing music or like picking a track it's like only commenting on like the emotion of the scene like I like it drives me crazy when people pick tracks that have like lyrics that reference anything about yeah. what's happening because it makes me think that person's an idiot it makes me think that they literally thought that that was what people listen to in music that they're like you know like anytime the who are you song is used fuck that in any movie anytime how many times has it ever been used and it wasn't somebody looking for somebody sorry ben so can we can we please though can we carve out fortunate son <laughs> in obviously, you know, obviously, or like oh, no, soldiers. Sorry, sorry, Luke. Luke and I have another one. I should probably shouldn't rope him into these things in case I get in trouble. But I'm sorry, London Calling. Mm. Blow my brains out that if it's like London Calling, every time we need to cut to London, if we're in another city in a movie, and they're like, "Okay, we need to go to London." It's like, yeah, I bet that's what you're gonna do every fucking time. You know, it's say crazy. what you will about the film Euro Trip, but when they show uh, London, they use the jams in the city. That you, I, I actually say what you will about Euro Trip. There is one of my favorite jokes in one of, in that era of just like dumb studio comedy. I think it's a great joke. I think about it all the time. It seems very much like a Simpsons joke, but it's like when they when they're like. It's like in the sort of save the cat like screenplay structure where they're at like their lowest point because they've been like robbed or something. I don't remember. Or like they got kicked off the train after Fred Armisen. I don't remember what the stage of the thing it was because I haven't seen this movie in like 20 years or whatever it was. But they're like broke and they're in like Bulgaria or something. And they're like, what the fuck are we even going to do? They stole all our money and we're in where the fuck are we anyways? And they're like, well, let's, how much money do we have? And they pet 17 cents. They have like a, like a couple nickels. And they're like 17 cents. Like, well, how much does this get us in wherever the fuck we are? And cut to like penthouse hotel because it's like some <laughs> Eastern Bloc country where they're millionaires by having 17 cents. That's a great joke and a great like fuck you to screenplay structure of just like, yeah, yeah, we don't really want to see them solve this problem. We just want to play on the joke that there's countries that, uh, you know, exchange rate humor. <laughs> and that's great. Yeah. You're a trip. That's all I remember about it, really. If I knew I was going to be getting on a podcast with two Euro trip heads, I might have sat this one out. <laughs> wow. It's wow. Alec, isn't it like Alec Berg or somebody who wrote it, though? Isn't there like some real heavy cred behind it that makes it not just some bullshit? I'm pretty sure. I believe I think that. I'm right about this. Let's just say it's true. Yeah. I love, though, that, yeah, that one of my podcast policies is I love just saying things and not, like, checking them. I like just being wrong. <laughs> it's just funny. I just, yeah, it's good to do that sometimes. I'm too scared of that fucking one-star reviewer, man. I'm going to be trying to get my my facts <laughs> right. Luke and I, Luke and I, on our on our uh, anime podcast, we did. There's one time we edited out 
because neither of us got the name right. Like we were trying to remember the name of some director and we went back and forth for like 45 seconds and never got to it. So we're like, fuck that. We're taking that out of there. Like that's not, we don't need to waste everyone's time and we didn't get it right. But like other than that, no. Since we're talking about the classic comedy Euro trip, I would like Mm -hmm. to say that for all of the vibes and the cool music and the masterful filmmaking, Irma Mm -hmm. Vep is often very funny. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's a scene in this movie that fucking kills me, which is uh, the first time we see Maggie taking direction on set from Renee, and he's going on and on about the nature of silent film and how to rightly calibrate performance and that she must ultimately respect the silence. Mm -hmm. And it's this like really pretentious directing. And the second (laughs) she walks out of the frame, the producer walks up and says, why did you say all that? She's hypnotized (laughs) in this scene. And he just makes, like, the doofiest, like, most blank face and said, I thought that it was important. I think that it is important to insist. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's important to insist. It's such it's I watched so it funny. I watched it recently. I was laughing at that line of, like, yeah. And then he drinks out of the fucking Coke bottle. That's yeah. the first time that it's the shot the Coke bottle's introduced, I think. I think he literally says, I think it's important to insist. And there's, a, like, a comic beat, and he produces the Coke bottle from, like, the yeah, whole yeah, frame. Yeah. And drinks out of it, like, heartily. And then just, like, you know, and I was like, ugh, it just grosses me out every single time. I don't know. Like, it's something that it bothers me so much. Yeah, yeah. It's It's super funny, but it's also, like, kind of a complex characterization that, like, he knows what he just said is nothing. He knows it's bullshit. And also, he's not offended by her seeing that. Like, he's not embarrassed. He's just like, <laughs> nope, that's just what I did. I like to be insistent. Okay, let's go. Anyway, great moment. It's also the way that, like, nobody, because she doesn't speak French, like, this is such a very, it's a very French attitude that Asayas is, like, showing off. Is like, because she doesn't speak French, they kind of think that she's, like, a dullard. That she doesn't know any, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, people are, the constantly people are like, I don't think she understands what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, because both of you, she's listening in a second language and you're speaking in a second language. This is, this is a two-way street of fault, but they're like, she doesn't get it. Or like, right. she's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff, the stuff that people lay on her because they aren't taking the time to try and understand her. They've just written her off because she doesn't speak French is like, incredible. Wow, Beautiful. <laughs> No, it's great. I, 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 the in the one, like the in the one sort of Irmavep trip that I, I one time I did get Luke and I got flown to Paris. We were working for Luke Besson before he was canceled, and <laughs> you know, like very, you know, whatever all that. But it was like you know, we that was the first time we'd ever been traveled for work, and so it was, and I'd never been to France before. I mean, even like Luke, I maybe had or maybe hadn't been. So it was like both of us first time doing that, and I was so scared. But I found in it. I don't know about you guys. I found that if you've ever been there or not, like everybody was actually kind of nice to me, even like, but like bartenders and stuff, like people that I would have thought would be rude. I don't know. I, maybe it's different. Maybe this is a different thing, but I feel like in the era that this movie came out, that was definitely what everybody said about like French people being snobs. And like, right. if you don't try, they're going to punish you by like not talking to you at all. And this type of stuff. And I didn't speak a goddamn word of it. And I was acting like a child the whole time. And everyone was nice to me. I don't, I don't know. You know, like I just pointed at things. It was great. <laughs> it seemed fine, but I, I don't know. I'm sure it can be horrible in that way. Well, I think for her, it's also like as a, as a woman of color, like people are constantly talking about her as the Chinese actress or even just yes. La Chinoise. Like they're just calling her the Chinese one. Like, yes. Or oh, like yeah. China woman, essentially it like <laughs> is, is truly crazy. Like 
you know, this movie, I, it, I don't think this movie judges everybody, like, is, is, is somewhat impartial, is not saying anybody is, like, right, but the only person that I wanted to, like, punch, that mm-hmm. I was like, you're my enemy now, is the director that gets called in to replace oh yeah he's oh, such a prick. he's such a shithead i such wanted shithead. to I... murder that motherfucker uh-huh. because for two reasons one because he's racist two because he asks questions that he doesn't actually want an answer to and yeah. uh that that was driving me insane because he like he uh he takes the other the other french actress to dinner and he's like why does he want the chinese one and she tries to give answers and he's like no but that's stupid and it's like well then why did you ask for you asked a question and you even paused you acted like it wasn't rhetorical then you got mad at me for asking but then you're also like his his reasoning for like that irma vep is the is the frenchest of french characters and it cannot be played by a foreigner and it has to be somebody from Mm -hmm. like the parisian underclass completely ignoring the fact that in many ways the maggie chung casting works perfectly because uh, in Paris at the time, the actual underclass is immigrants. Like, it yeah, is a much yeah. more, you know, it's the fucking 20th century. If you're actually getting, like, the people, the the most oppressed people of class, like, being the sexy jewel robbers, that's gonna be immigrants. Mm-hmm. It's actually a yeah, cool yeah, casting yeah. idea. Well, and it's, it's like, it's, it's, the, that guy, I've always been so fascinated with that guy, because I've, again, it's one of those things that, like, I, I do think, that's a really, I don't know who that actor is. I don't know where that guy came from. I'd almost believe it if he was just a, like a different kind of director that was playing like, because it's such a perfect characterization for a certain kind of male director in an old, an older kind of like grumpy guy. <laughs> and it does seem very European. And it's funny. Cause like, I, I try to like, I try to like understand like what, not to say that everything has to be like a Ramana Clef, like representation, like one-to-one comparison, but I find myself wondering what that guy is supposed to, how he's supposed to be distinguishable from Rene as like within the context of film history, you know what I mean? Like, is he supposed to be slightly younger? So would he be more of a like, uh, I don't know what the, who would be the directors from that era just uh, like after the new wave guys or something, but he looks like, like sort of like, um, is it Paul Greengrass that he kind of looks like or something? There's like, a, yeah, oh, sure. it, always, it always makes me like, I remember thinking that the first time I saw it and I thought that was very funny, but the way he drinks the beer in that scene, I was like, so fucking disgusting. There's something about the way, like, it, it, it's the, it's the dark side to the tactile bliss that I was describing before. <laughs> that, like, you know, when you're good at capturing what's so delicious about cigarettes and red wine and things like that, you're going to find the way to just serve the beer to the guy and just like capture him drinking it in just the most revolting way that is still somehow completely acceptable and normal. I can't explain it, but there's something about that. I think maybe it is just his attitude in the scene is like making him an uglier person and it makes his behavior seem more brutish or something, but it's, it's phenomenal casting. It's great. Yeah. I know that that actor had worked previously with Fassbender. Mm, that makes sense. Um, he played, he played a, a director in a, in a Fassbender movie. In the seventies. Oh, so he probably. I wonder if he was like the guy that was like playing like a fastbender kind of stand-in for him. You know, like if I wonder if that was like his thing. If he was one of those guys, yeah. like <laughs> that would be fun. Like the Marcello Mastroianni of like you know that era or something. That guy. I'm trying to think of what if if I actually if there's anybody that I hated in this other than the, I mean I just find him gross. But I, I generally just like there's a bunch of familiar faces too of people who pop up in other of these movies like the the producer guy with the glasses that's like the he's in um 
he's in Boarding Gate. He's like the dude at the beginning of Boarding Gate that's shooting guns with Michael Madsen. Yeah, yeah. And he's in he's in like those Jarmusch. He's in like uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, I think, and stuff. He's I don't know who that guy is. He just pops up in things. And then the woman that plays Zoe, I feel like she's in a bunch of stuff. I can't. She was in Never Let Me Go, I think. Oh, the Mark Romanek film. I want to say. I love her. In Zoe it. shows up in other Asayas stuff. I'm, but... I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm like in love with that character too. The actress, not the okay. character. Sorry. Oh, that would be fun if the character though. I'm in love with that character. That's like, like I, when I watch the thing, I'm just, I like, I, she's such a real three dimensional person to me, and I, it's just something about. I mean, I will, we were texting last night, Thomas. The, the special features. Did you watch that interview with him? No, I haven't. But I, I'm looking forward to checking that stuff out. There's a part where he's talking about where the film landed kind of for him in his career and what was making, making it special. And he was referencing like things that were influencing him. And in his sort of French way, I didn't fully follow it. So I'm going to try to paraphrase <laughs> some of what he was saying, but he was talking about Kenneth anger. Who I don't know if you, I've never, I've tried to watch Kenneth anger movies and I've always oh, not I really found them compelling. <laughs> I mean, I like the idea of it. I mean, I'd probably like like a, like if somebody else, like you should watch you know, it on you know, like, just have it up. Like I, it doesn't, it has like popular, like rock soundtracks of the time, most of it. So it's really, it's a really good on mute thing to watch not good for a bar because titties and dicks but oh well yeah but depends on the bar you're in you know yeah. you know it's kind of like yeah that kind of after hours kind of bar <laughs> with those kind of, but like but he talked about that like i guess i the, the sort of kenneth anger like use of like you know iconic faces or kind of like catering roles to the performer but osseus took it like a step further in some sort of other theoretical way where he was describing something like you know like meeting meeting the actor like at their essence or something and not not like like not expecting them to contort fully to a vision, but that you have to first like I didn't be able as a filmmaker to like understand what makes the performer unique and have like their own unique spirit, and you need to be sure that you are playing to and capturing that. He's like, and from there they can say your lines and they can be in your scenes, but you're not. It, it's it's he said it's like a different approach to casting and directing actors that he didn't he felt like he learned prior to making this film that he didn't feel like he had applied to his other work and I've never seen the earlier like his first two or three movies or whatever I've never been that interested in them I, they don't sound like things I would really love yeah you and would. I find that it's in the, oh I'm sure I would be interested in it, but like I, I it's interesting that I was always drawn to this kind of pocket of movies pretty much starting with Irma Beth up to I don't love summer hours, but I want to say almost everything in between there I'm like obsessed with. And even then after that, he's back to bangers pretty much for the next couple of years. And then there's a couple I missed. But it's like I, whatever it was he thinks he did that got him to understand actors so well. Clearly, it paid off because every movie he did from Irma Vep on was just like my favorite performances from whoever is in them. You know what I mean? Like it's strong. I mean, Asia Argento is fucking amazing in Boarding Gate. I don't even know if she's good. Like, yeah. normally, I can't even she's, tell. She's, she's extremely good in that. It's, she's a lot really in good. other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a physical performance, too. She's doing so much in that movie. I don't know how he's getting it out of people. But he's like, you know, whatever, meeting them at the uniqueness of their spirit or something. And Yeah, he has, he has a really unique, I think, intuitive way of breaking down a performer to their essence and then just working with them to milk that for all that it's worth. There are so many examples of that. I mean, Edgar Ramirez and Carlos, like when has he ever been good like that? Obsessed with that. I mean, it was like really, truly, I mean, again, I don't even know how, yeah, how you would have known to think. I always liked Edgar Ramirez actually from oddly enough, Domino, 
the Tony Scott. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I classic. I think right. I mean, it's it's one that I've seen a lot, but he's in that, and it was like, yeah, he always had some weird charisma, and I noticed it because every time I'd seen that movie, any any uh, like like my girlfriend or like my sisters, everybody was always like, who the fuck is that guy? And you could sort of see this like weird attraction that he had, this charisma he had. It had nothing to do with the character or the lines. It was just something internal to him. So, so like, it's like, I'm not, I wasn't totally surprised, but that's still three movies to carry like six and a half hours of not easy to follow historical, like, you know, it's like, oh, that's yeah. a wild, yeah, I see this just crushing endlessly. And he's not even that old, right? He's like in his sixties. Yeah. He's in his sixties. We're going to have so many more movies from him. His last movie is the only movie of his that I don't think is, like, good. Which one? <laughs> uh, Wasp Network. Uh, I didn't see it. I was afraid of that. Everything else he's made, I think, is, like, some kind of great. And that movie feels like him trying to do, like, an Adam McKay thing, and it doesn't work. But I don't mm. even like to be on the record saying that, because I love him. No, I know there's a couple that I don't love, and I, but I don't. I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind saying like I said, summer hours. I don't love. It feels like a, that feels like a different kind of director to me. To me, when I saw it, like there was that movie Christmas Tale, or that one that was like <laughs> that had that felt like it was like it's like it felt like he was trying to make a movie like that, and I was like, yeah, and that movie's more fun. Like summer hours was just kind of boring. I just didn't. It didn't do anything for me. I don't know. Interesting. I should watch it again. But I like I like it when Osseus does like international travel. That's the thing. I want I want fucking people on airplanes. I want hotel rooms. I want oddly shaped food items because they're from countries I, you know, like specific versions of like, oh, I don't know that they you know they had Evian a pull tab on top or whatever. Like <laughs> things like that. There's always some odd thing or whatever. I want all that shit. I don't want to see French people in the countryside like enjoying their wealth. You know, I don't really care about that as much mm. from him in that sense. I want like like corporate espionage and like, you know. Fun stuff like that. That makes sense to me. Cat suits. Cat suits, honestly. Cat if suits. summer hours, if they were all wearing cat suits the whole time, I think I'd be, you know, I think I'd like it a lot more. Probably. The thing you were saying earlier, Ben, about like the the way that um, that Asayas like conveys sort of the the you don't want to say sensuality, but like the sensorial information through film, mm-hmm. like it's. Uh, it's the 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 way that the sound of the latex catsuit is used for like comedic effect or to be like cool and kind of <laughs> sexy on a rooftop like when she steals the jewelry and it's like oh oh okay latex just belongs on rooftops i get it now we're cool but before that it's just like wow this shit is loud i feel bad for everyone mm-hmm. having to hear it it's really it to get both sides of it it's like it's like he's doing a magic trick there though because you're like literally like he's it's like, yeah, he's acknowledging the sort of tactile reality of what it would like to be, you know, what, what it's like to be in something like that, which is to say, you know, uncomfortable or awkward in ways that other clothing isn't maybe. But then to sort of just pull it out of its context and place it in one where that's not an issue. And suddenly it becomes exactly what it's meant to be, which is like this cool, sexy, graceful, elegant thing. And I mean, we should just talk about that scene, right? Because, dude, this whole sequence of her in her room with Sonic Youth through that robbery everything that's the best do you think he do you think he's consciously referencing ghost in the shell i was thinking about this last night but i've never asked myself this question he's acknowledged i mean he's had reference to anime and other things it's not like he wouldn't have seen ghost in the shell i'd seen it at that point and i was a kid but it's like 
I always found myself looking at the shots of her standing in the rain, which but that's the sickest looking shit I've ever seen in my fucking life. One of my favorite shots in a movie, probably. It I looks agree. like a li- it looks like the like like test footage for a live action low budget Ghost in the Shell when you go back <laughs> and look at it. Because it's like she's standing over the thing and it's kinda coming up. It looks like the opening shots and it's like, God damn, he's doing and this movie's so cheaply made. He's just got everything he needs to make something awesome looking. Yeah, and nothing yeah. else. Because he's obviously he didn't get the light up there, right? That's gotta be all real to some degree, real lighting, I would think. I don't think he... I, I mean, maybe, but it just feels so deeply stylized and perfectly articulated that I can't imagine he's just working with what's there. But, like, maybe that speaks to his, you know, abilities as a filmmaker. Maybe uh, maybe that's just where all the money went. Maybe literally <laughs> everything else was... And then it's just like, yeah, but we're going to get rain machines, we're going to get big-ass fucking lights for, like, half a night. And we're going to get one take of her walking around like that. Because I think, is it one shot continuously? Did you guys notice? I did. When it's like, there's, there's cuts, but there's a long one of them. I can't remember. Yeah. It's it's really crazy. But you you can feel that it's like, yeah, that's the easier way to get it if you can only do one or two. You know what I mean? Just like, don't cut. <laughs> there's your you production value. Yeah. Because audiences do pick up on that. They're like, you know, especially at this point, but I think even just internally the sense of like, yeah, it's raining, it's night, this woman's wearing this thing, like, that, that's dangerous, this movie isn't expensive. I think there's a feeling of, like, oh, this suddenly got bigger, even though technically it's not like it's, you know, she's not Batman, she didn't, like, punch, you know, 17 people down an alley or something, she's just standing on a roof, but it yeah. it has that feeling of, like, whoa, shit just got big. And just well, cinematic, I think. And even the part before it, where she's literally just standing very quietly in someone else's hotel room, I think helps key up that we're getting into some getting into something more cinematic and it like feels like fuzzy mm-hmm. good point good point yeah that whole stretch to me almost feels like uh like a non-literal like magical realist yeah. portion of the film like i i think mm-hmm. i think i think the movie is not always two feet planted firmly on the ground i think it kind of oscillates weirdly between different levels of being heightened that's interesting i can't tell and it's weird because most of his movies are kind of like seemingly grounded, but then you're right sometimes with like touches of un. I don't know. Yeah, that's an. Interesting I mean, movie. Clouds of Sils Maria character literally disappears into the sky. <laughs> I still don't know what to make of that. I still don't know what to make of that movie. That's a whole. We could do a whole episode just of like what the fuck do you think is going on fully with that. Sure. No, no, no. Well, I think- sorry, Bethy, you had a pertinent idea. <laughs> I was I was reading up on on his body of work and like some of his influences. And he's talked about how some of his like earliest like memories is of like the 68, May 68 riots. And that he was like deeply influenced by the situationists and a situationist is like a special interest of mine for sure. And one thing that I definitely took from them is like to, to assign or need one fixed meaning is for hosers. Like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You're boring. I'm cool, 100%. and I can hold multiple realities in my brain. In fact, I think that's the key to our liberation. Like, that is the situation is sort of <laughs> mantra, is like, mm, maybe some stuff also means the opposite of it. Deuces. And then it, like, they moonwalk out of the room. That falls mm-hmm. under I didn't, the... I didn't... Go ahead. No, to identify that. No, I'm thanking her for educating me, because I did not know. I wouldn't have been able to tell you if I even knew what the situation, like that that is a movement that would have been defining of that kind of thinking, because I 
that I mean, like, that's kind of most of most of the movies that we've made. We sort of <laughs> like to traffic in, you know, multiple interpretations and much to the chagrin of some people and the, the delight of others. But that's that's very much in the way that I experience the world. So I, 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 I am very happy when movies are bold enough to be that way. So I now get to sound cooler because I can use that as a reference when I say that uh, and I can read up about it. So I'll sound even smarter. So thank you. I had no idea. Thomas, you wanted to say something, but real, real quick, I just want to go, go. to show the to Ben and for the for the people yes. watching this book, the realization and suppression of the Situationist International, is like <laughs> was right next to me, so it was easy to pull. It's actually right; it was right next to Twilight. Um, oh, nice! And it's like I think it's intentionally like overly notated. Like I think it's supposed; to, it's mm-hmm. almost like a joke how academic of a book it is but it is very useful for like learning about the situationists and their whole weird deal They're kind of like the animaniacs yeah. of art <laughs> okay interesting okay see i went to art school and have it i i i i have a degree i've never seen it but i i, I hold a, a bachelor's of fine art actually oh, and me i too. I, yeah, I mean, like, how useful have they been? And it, it didn't look at that. I don't even know that. It, but it's like, that's because, oh, what, I had one semester of 20th century art or like art since 1945 or whichever thing. And it's like, yeah, I guess someone just didn't mention that whole movement. It just didn't come up that semester. Can't cover all of it, I suppose. What about you, Thomas? Uh, sorry, what's the question? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a question. You had something we were I felt we I were interrupted you to off show off a book. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's cool. I'm writing the high of a very large edible oh, that kicked yeah. hard about 10 minutes ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I'm flying through oh, space yeah. right now, but with um, you know, our audience in the highest regard. Uh, well, that... I'll, I'll smoke more of this joint so that you're not uh, alone in the. So wait, are people going to see us on the video? No, like, no I wasn't just sure. Audio. Okay, no. <laughs> no. okay, because I was I was totally open to that because I don't like try not to like be embarrassed, but I was like, oh, I don't know if I did anything weird. I'm like the most jittery person because I'm not used to talking and sitting still. I usually when I'm like talking on the phone or something, I pace around. Yeah. So when I sit still, I'm like 15 different things that I can smoke or hold or you know like this. Yeah, and the ADD was stuff. recently diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of, kind of kind of hit a point where it was uh, hard to ignore you know yeah. it happens that way i mean i was like like 34 or something when i when the first time it was like brought up and i went to a psychiatrist and did a whole evaluation it's like yep that's what it uh, sure seems to be uh, your mom <laughs> had it so like you probably should have been here a long time ago that's uh you know it's like your parent has it it's like uh, i don't know 75 percent chance you will so yeah huh wonder why no one ever brought that up before and it's like yeah that is weird Thomas, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you were saying the the older Renee, the the older director is like corny and saying dumb shit. I I agree, <laughs> but also part of me kind of wants to be him because mm-hmm. it would be so fun to be shouting directions as the sedatives take hold. <laughs> I can't think of a thing I would rather do than like be half falling asleep in a French apartment telling people what to do as like the police administer sedatives to me that's <laughs> I, 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 that's the dream that's the goal i think i i should say that i i love him like i think he's kind of funny and i think he's often the butt of the joke yeah. as someone in the twilight of his career who thinks he can pivot to something else and doesn't yet have the self-awareness to know that he just won't oh but no i think uh i think renee's a cool guy I, just, I don't know, I kind of am a little bit on like with Maggie in that I 
there is the gem there's the germ of something cool in the choices he's made with the source material like you can argue mm-hmm. over whether mm-hmm. or not it's a good idea to remake a serial from the 1910s but like the choices he's making i'm intrigued by mm-hmm. i think this comes back to our conversation of like taste and specificity though right like even if even if maybe at this stage of his career he's like making the wrong choices he still is such a specific prism through which these ideas are filtered and so like it's going to be specific and it's going to be interesting we do kind of get that side of it at the very end of the movie where we see what he's cut together and you're like oh this is this is something this is something. You yeah. can't argue that it's nothing. It is something. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because it's like, that's actually like the idea that that's the outcome of like, of whatever his vision became or was and was misunderstood or something is very charitable for what like, it, I, okay, I don't have a ton of these experiences, so I'm not giving any coded necessarily. I More of like people like Thomas's brother and other like peers of mine that were like doing my job a little bit ahead of me have I've heard a lot of stories where it's like, yeah, if you're a guy my age that, you know, grew up when I grew up, it's like, you might get the chance to, like, write a movie for one of your heroes. Like, somebody that, like, was the coolest guy in the world making the coolest movies when you were seven that you saw later. You know, you might get those opportunities. And it's like, sometimes that's awesome, but it does seem like so often you're kind of playing to what you imagine the person used to be. And that, like, they're people that kind of just, I mean, it's normal. And sometimes, like, God love them, they find, like, a way to sort of, you know, like, find new relevance or something. But there is, like, that that sense of, like, respect and, and pleasure that you get out of this guy. But also the sadness of knowing that, like, even he kind of knows he doesn't have it anymore. But you can't be that guy without at least pretending like you still have it. Otherwise, how, you know what I mean? Like, he can't. It's he's in a bind there, and anybody in that position is in a bind of like, yeah, look, I know I'm not making a movie that's as good as fill in the blank other movie, but what do you expect me to do? Not make anything? Like this is my job. Like you know, I don't know. I I figured I just had to insist something to her. I'm a director. I directed something. You know, the, he just says things <laughs> yeah. like he doesn't. It's like and, and it's, like, it's the kind of thing like you said like when the sedatives are kicking in. It's because I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that in in a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, that joke would have been, like, huge, right? <laughs> the idea that, or a Woody Allen movie, even, you know, not the, you know, whatever, like, you know, I don't know if it's bad to mention Woody Allen, but, like, a, like Hollywood ending, for instance, is the kind of movie that you could imagine him directing while passing out on sedatives, and that's, like, a joke that would be big, and it would be silly, and somehow in this, it's all textured. Yeah. It's more like a bit from Succession or something. It's not, like, it's not slapsticky in it, and so, like, even you calling it out as, it's like, yeah, I guess that is like a big comedy moment that still has a touch of humanity, even though I think on a satirical level saying that like one of these old gas bag new wave guys like would literally pass out before stopping <laughs> to direct people is like that's a very funny joke. Yeah, but it's I don't I, it doesn't play as a like, did you hear about the director that couldn't stop? You know, like it's not that kind of bit, but it kind of is that kind of bit. And that's I don't know. He's threading the needle in his satire in some different interesting ways I find throughout the movie and in all of his movies probably, but yeah, definitely in this one. It's on now on my TV. So I keep looking at it. Now. <laughs> God, I, w- I would like, I would like to teleport into this movie. It's one of those ones <laughs> that like, you know, like, I, like Luke and I were talking, we always talk about how actually, no, this is relevant. Luke and I were just talking about it today. Cause I told him I was watching this movie again and like, it's becoming a thing and it's not like, we're not nostalgic because we obviously never got to be there. But one of the great sadnesses of my lifetime to me still is that I did not have the opportunity 
as an adult to visit Hong Kong before like it was given back to China or whatever, like when Hong Kong was still at peak Hong Kong in that era. And like this reminds it's, it's like it's related to this, even though this is Paris, but it's like it's like there's I don't have any interest in like going to Woodstock in the 60s or some stupid bullshit like historical things. But I would love to just beam myself into the 1996 of Irmavep and just like, you know, have a beer in one of these cafes and just see what the lighting feels like to, you know, just to be in that world of that very specific sensual reality, like you're saying, that it's like, it's not, it's weird. It's, it's tactile. It's experiential. There's something you want to be in those things. And I can't, uh, it's like the same thing when I watch a Wong Kar Wai movie. And that's the sadness. I can go to Paris. I can't go to Hong Kong. It's, not, it's quite the same thing. I don't think anymore, but like I, when you watch Chungking Express, you want to eat every fucking thing that that guy gets. Like you want to, you want to be in that in every sense. You know, I mean, it's not surprising that I have colored lights in my apartment because I watch enough Wong Kar Wai movies that I'm like, yeah, I want to live like that. Like, that's not a joke, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. There's something really special about certain films have that transportive quality, I think, anyways. I don't know. I'm using that wasn't a point I was making. <laughs> I, I for what it's not a point, but I agree with amusing. Yeah, thank you. The The scene at the party where the woman hosting it is like cornering maggie and like blowing up zoe's spot <laughs> she thinks she's being Painful. slick and it's deeply uh, uncomfortable i like la pauvre zoe she did nothing wrong i feel so bad as somebody who as somebody who is very used to having sort of like passive crushes like crushes mm-hmm. that have no interest in acting on it's like oh this is a crush how interesting i will put it on the crush shelf and move on with my life <laughs> Um, along with the fourteen others, yeah. For someone to, I'm assuming if you're like me, I don't know. It's like why? Yes. Why would it, you know? Why are you acting like this is a thing to act upon? She's like, it's always like, hey, we're working. I wouldn't want to. And then the friend's like, don't worry, I got you. I'm gonna get you laid, girl. And it's like the the cringiest shit. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, it, well, if you're if you're a if you're like an introverted person, that's that's like a horror movie. That scene alone is a horror movie because the idea that you would just like breathe that confidence and look. I mean, sometimes you say something to somebody because you want them to say something, and so like you can act aghast, but really that's like what you secretly wanted because you were never going to say anything. But the idea of that being in, those two things being swapped <laughs> is the is the horrifying nightmare. Where it's like, oh God, you thought. You thought I wanted you to say something because I was too big of a coward. No, I'm smarter than you, and I knew that this was a terrible idea. You shouldn't say anything at all whatsoever. Oh, God, now it's going to have to be a thing. And it's like, that's just, that's horrible. And it fucks up their dynamic for the rest of the movie, right? It's like Zoe kind of becomes an obstacle and a bit of an antagonist only because that information was revealed against her will. Like, she's never inappropriate. Well, there's also, there's, I was found myself really getting invested in, there's the other thing that's like, such a great little rock in the shoe of this movie that, that again, Asias usually has like five of those in every one of his movies, but this whole bit about like the, whatever that other producer woman that's going on about how like Zoe's a junkie yeah. and she yeah. keeps like, and it's like, and, and, and it's one of those things that like, I feel like it doesn't even have to be anything around film industry. I feel like if you've ever been in a job, <laughs> you've probably had that conversation where it's like some the shithead authority figure. Cause I don't know. I don't, I have an innate distrust of producers that is like, you know, on some level, like a survival tactic, I think, but it, like that woman, I don't, I don't trust her. And so her assessments that this costumer is like 
a junkie, first off. It's like, it's, in my opinion, in my experience, typically the people that accuse other people of being junkies don't know anything about drug use. And so they just use it broadly to mean anyone who's ever used drugs that they don't like. So it's like right away, I don't trust her. And, and all of her, all of her, like, if you listen to her story, that's the justification. Cause she keeps saying it. And Maggie's like, I don't understand what the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, Oh, she's, she's a junkie. She's a junkie. She's a, and you're like, okay, so say, say what you mean. And she tells this story. It's like, we were on a job and she got this actress addicted to, to her drugs. And by the end, this girl was a wreck and I knew it. And I tried to find, I tried to catch her and I could have never been able to catch her right away. That right away is like proof that like, it's always suggestive that something isn't happening when you're like, I, I've never, I've never caught him doing it, but I just know they are. Yeah. And it's like, so she goes on. So you're kind of like, I don't even know what this information is. Like, is it supposed, am I supposed to have any belief that that is a p- component of this character's plot? Or is this woman just hate, you know, like I don't, but they don't, the movie doesn't confirm or deny or really participate in that. But you say, I do think when you say the rift between Maggie and Zoe, I think that's another piece of it. That it's like you spend this whole scene where Maggie's denying that she believes this because the audience is too going like, yeah, right. What? And it's like, but then the rest of the movie, you kind of have to go like, well, is there any truth to that? Like, is there some truth to it that that woman's taken out of context? And that's usually how in a work situation that is. It's like, yeah, okay, you catch the new girl smoking a joint with the guy behind the thing and he was late for his thing. So now she's the troublemaker that did the thing. Okay, well, that happened once. That's not a person that has a drug problem. So it's like you can kind of imagine that that's like this kind of situation, but the movie has no interest in ever telling you. Right. So it's like just on the table or not. I don't know. It's weird. I think that producer is a piece of shit at just a terrible person who clearly is just like gunning for Zoe. But I do think that that her struggle with addiction is an interesting layer to her character. And I think Mm -hmm. it's complicated by the final moment where she's like very sad that Maggie doesn't want to go and party with her. And she like fumbles and pulls those pills out of her purse and then goes inside. Mm -hmm. That to me feels like it's speaking to that idea, but maybe I'm stupid. Putting that scene where the the woman is shit talking Zoe and then putting that scene afterward, it it puts the seed of doubt in your brain too. So you find yourself in Maggie's shoes, distrusting Zoe where before you were like on her side entirely. It's like really like immersing her in that subjective experience. And that's, I think it's clever and it's like, it's so it's either it's nice because again, in the refusal to admit to one, like to choose one path, I think it's either like kind of the suggestion is there because this woman hates her and is out to get her. And so there's like, you know, again, maybe a kernel of truth or something but it's like, or it's just intentionally choosing not to paint a black and white picture of like substance use and abuse and stuff. And that it's like kind of like, which I, I, I have a personal issue with in movies. I really don't, I don't like it when substance use or abuse is invoked only to, to reinforce some kind of moral dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. If the movie is, isn't going to acknowledge that that's all it's doing on a subjective character level. So it's like, I like that. Like, yeah, it's fine to have this character say a bunch of shitty things about this other character that I happen to like, it's like, I get to choose to do that or whatever, but the movie doesn't acknowledge which, which is supposed to be factual. So that hint that you're saying is like, yeah, that could support it in different interpretations still. And I like that a lot. I don't know. Yeah, totally. God, my cat is biting me now. He wants <laughs> me to do something with him. I'm going to turn his like uh, laser toy on. Maybe that'll help. That's a good cat. Is there anything else that we really wanted to make sure we hit? No, I mean, I, I think, We've kind of repeatedly hit the nail on the head, which is that this is a vibe movie more than anything. And I think sometimes if you're thinking of like a a French 
filmmaker and an artful film, you want to have a really intellectual articulation of why you think it's good. But with Irma Vep, it's just like a good time. And I think that's the way we've talked about it. <laughs> it's a great time. It's a great, it's, it's, it is totally just a good, yeah, it's, it's not long either. It's pleasurable. It's like you're not, you know, anybody who likes movies should watch this movie. Dude, it's a barn burner, beginning to end. It's great. Wonderful. All right. This rocked. Ben, yeah. if, if people want to find you on the internet or at your home, you know. Yeah, what's your oh, address? Oh, sure, they could do that. Where should they go? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I, I haven't thought about this recently. I bet you could probably piece that together from my social media post if you really wanted to. Uh, but I, Twitter is probably the best place. Uh, that's where I met you, Thomas. So, you know, no, I met you at the Griffin. I met you on the Griffin <laughs> patio. Right. Fuck. Yeah, you know, you're right. Okay. No, sorry. I, when I say met, I believe I had seen your tweets before we met in person. I oh, could okay. be wrong. I believe I had, but you're right. I believe that we did not interact on Twitter first. And so I believe we did meet at the Griffin, but I first became aware of you on Twitter, which right. is, you know, it's a good place to meet you as well. So <laughs> I think we both had our best foot forward in that instance. And, uh, yeah, it's, what is it? I think I'm at B Davis Collins. Uh, you can you can talk to me on there. I'm not, I try to be nice. That's know. the only way to find and uh, funny. Your uh, your prolific life is a Jack Reacher poster, um, <laughs> so it's an essential follow. Yeah. yeah, no, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of cat stuff. There's a lot of Jack Reacher stuff these days. There's a lot of like um, YouTube links to songs that people don't like, but that I you know it's like, <laughs> stuff like that. You know. You know, very. Not, I'm not going to like leak any Hellraiser news or anything, but <laughs> but uh, you know, it's. I like to think it's a good account. I I agree with you, Bethy. Are you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Bethy B S Q U or on Instagram at Bethy Squires. But where should people go to get the full Thomas Twitter experience that we've been hearing so much about? <laughs> um, if you want to get the full Thomas Twitter experience, it's going to be at J O. E L O S T E E N. That's at uh, Handsome Pal, Handsome underscore Pal. And the show is also on Twitter at Movie Bar Pod. And it's on Instagram at Movie Bar underscore Pod. Oh, the old underscore. Yeah, we're all over the place. We're going to give Ben a second to follow real quick and then we'll uh, wrap things <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I just followed Bethy, so I figured that was like I locked that one in first and foremost. Lock so, it in. Yeah, that's. that's yeah, that's what we did. Listeners, you can do the same on your phone right now. Guys, I would love I'd come back anytime if you want. I'll talk more OCS movies. We could talk about anything you guys wanted. I was trying to remember the name of uh we should talk about this later. Okay. Uh bye. <laughs> ben, we'd love okay, to have bye. you back. Thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, right on. Yeah, have a good night, guys. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs>